welcome to Stuff Ian Likes, the podcast about stuff that Ian likes. My name's Ian Banks. I'm using this podcast to look at how some of my favourite pieces of art have changed the way I look at the world. It explores how art can affect the way we look at things around us, and it's a chance for me to go squee over things that I love. I'm not going to do a deep dive into the background of each piece. What you're going to get is a brief survey of what it is, what I like about it, and how it's influenced me in my own thinking. Thanks for joining me. Fantasy's been a pretty major part of our literary lives now for the last 20 years or so, but it's only been in the last few years that authors who've been successful have stopped being compared to J.R.R. Tolkien. Inevitably, not many of them deserved it in whatever sense of the word deserve you want to take there. But one that does is Tad Williams's epic trilogy, Memory, Sorrow and Thorn, which was published in three volumes, The Dragon Bone Chair in 1988, Stone of Farewell in 1990 and To Green Angel Tower in 1993, which was later split into two volumes because it was just a big fat book. Uh, those two volumes are entitled Siege and Storm. At any rate, Tad Williams does deserve a comparison to Tolkien because he created a world that was as fully realized as any other, apart from perhaps Middle Earth. And it was also one of the last great fantasy epics that didn't invite you to make a major lifestyle investment to complete the damned thing. We were promised a trilogy, and a trilogy is what we got, more or less. Two decades on, we've gotten a novella and a sequel trilogy slash quartet that's going to be completed later on in 2023. You should look that one out too. It's pretty damn good. Memory, Sorrow and Thorn is the story, mostly, of Simon, who's a scullery boy made good. It's got magic elves that are elves in all but name. There's warring immortals, suffering battles, swordplay, characters whining about their honour. There's romance, castles, kings and evildoers. Pretty much everything that you'd inspect in some kind of Tolkien-esque, oops, I did it, Tolkien-esque fantasy but what Williams does in these books is he takes the tropes and cliches and he makes them new. He puts them under a modern lens. I can say modern because the book is only, the series is only 35 years old, which is kind of modern. Anyway, the comparisons to Tolkien are inevitable. There's invented languages, there's songs, and they're great, actually, the songs. There's lots of different cultures and mythologies that have been plundered for the sake of verisimilitude. I can't even say that word, verisimilitude, but they serve a slightly different purpose in Williams's world. He's reconstructed after he's deconstructed it, of course, the entire epic fantasy of to incorporate modern takes on history, including racism, psychology, economics, and the notion of good and evil. I've recommended this series to a lot of my friends, but not many have really taken to it. It's too slow, they say. The characters spend a lot of time differing without furthering the plot, and the plot itself doesn't seem all that new. I'm going to point out that a couple of these people are folks who've recommended TV shows to me and have told me off for giving up after two or three episodes because the plot doesn't seem to be doing anything. I'm not judging them. I'm just pointing out that this happens. They know who they are. They don't need to be reminded of this. Anyway, that slow build-up is really interesting for me because 
it gives us all of the ideas and the history of Ostenard, this invented realm that Tad Williams has created for us. And frankly, it's interesting stuff. And then once you've got all this background information and backstories of characters and the history of who's done what to whom, it just lets go and it does not stop for nearly 3,000 pages. And frankly, that slow stuff's really interesting, like I said, because we get a really big picture of what Simon is and where he goes in life. I, I, I love that. It's his progression from scullion to traveler to knight to whatever his future holds for him, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers, is, is really interesting. It's one of the most really realistic portrayals of adolescence that I've ever come across in fantasy. He's not a serious, naive, bookish youth with his head buried in the clouds or one with deep concerns about honour that a lot of authors seem to think kids are like. He gets completely bewildered by the adventures he finds himself in. He gets moody and sulky. He lets his hormones do some of his thinking for him. He gets thrown about by his adventures. He gets pissed off by what happens to him, but he always struggles to do what he believes is right. And this is something I really like. When he wakes up after a night of drinking with his mates, he doesn't sensibly swear off drink forever. He just accepts it as a hazard of life, like a 15-year-old at a medieval kingdom would. And the moments in that first volume, The Dragonbone Chair, when he meets and begins to feel attracted to the disguised Princess Miriamel, are among the most realistic in fantasy. As his feelings develop, we follow the inevitable adolescent confusion about the princess. Does she like me? Doesn't she like me? What have I done to annoy her? Why is she being like that? Look, Simon has weighty concerns concerning the fate of his world. But we never let us for we never forget that he's a kid, first and foremost. And he also becomes a character who, though inexperienced, you can imagine commanding people twice his age and older, which is something that very few wunderkind in other fantasy sagas convince me of. And the other characters are equally developed as well. We've got Elias, a king driven mad by his obsession with his dead wife. Joshua, his brother, who has to lead a rebellion against his wishes. Binabic, the troll who befriends Simon and who struggles with his own honour and desires. Princess Miriamel, who completely subverts the cliché of feisty princess in a way that was almost unheard of in commercial fantasy before this. There's Dionoth, the honour-bound knight who serves Joshua, and it's Grimnir, the bluff lord, coming to terms with new ways of thinking and resolving conflict. And he's frankly a character who's just screaming to be played by Brian Blessed if there ever was one. And there's loads of other characters all equally well portrayed and realized this was one of the books that brought me out of an adolescent stupor that i had about what makes good reading is it style or is it substance fortunately this one's got both but really it's a thumping good story though it's slow to begin with and it it's combined with a critique of modern fantasy. The writing is consistently good throughout, and the conclusion, though expected, winds up the plotline satisfactorily. So, like I said, it's one of the most successful homages to Tolkien published to date, and while the debt 
is obvious. The slavish admiration is curiously absent. This is a fantasy epic that was written by a person who understands history and people and who isn't prepared to make concessions to a genre simply because it's easy to. If you'd like some more Stuff Ian Likes, you can read more at StuffIanLikes.com and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Stuff Ian Likes, which is all one word, or you can go to Facebook to the Stuff Ian Likes page. That's three words. Thanks for listening.